0: They will have part four and our last part for a series through the parable of uh, the Sower. Next week, we'll begin another brief, uh, another brief sermon series. So we'll nonetheless go through an entire book of the Bible, a short book uh, the book of Habakkuk, uh, which is only about three chapters long. But as I said in the email, he, knows he might be small and he punches way out of it. Uh, uh, I'm very much going. I've been wanting to taste your Habakkuk for a very long while that I'm finally able to talk Um I hope that you're able to come join us as we hear the that book. But nonetheless, today we will be finishing up our our series in the parable of the sober. So before I read Mark 12 verses one through twenty, let's go to God and ask that it's be able to Our Heavenly Father. These are not the words of man, But the words they wrote were the words that were given to them, as they were carried along by your Holy Spirit to inspired. them. These are your words. These are the words of God who spoke, who spoke the universe into being and now speaks salvation into our hearts using these very words, which all testify to the perfect obedience. Son, Jesus Christ, Father, we would ask this morning that we would see Christ as exes. Not just what he said, but that we would see, you know, we would see what he has accomplished on our behalf, and that by your spirit we might be comforted and made to believe with his fruit, having this word balanced with its roots. So Father, would you do this? For the sake of your son, this is for Amen. So March, hundred four 4, verse 1. 1- When he hear now the word of God. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him. So that he got into the boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea and on the land. And he was teaching them many things and parables. And in this teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed that fell on the path, and the birds came and they devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, and since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. Since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil, and produced grain, growing up, decreasing, yielding thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. He who has ears to hear, hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, may indeed hear, but not understand, but says you turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation and persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good floor are the ones who hear the word and they accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold, sixtyfold, fold, 60 fold eight hundredfold. So this morning, as I've said, we are concluding our four-part series on the parable of the sower. After this point, we saw what the kingdom of God was established on. Not established on a particular economic theory or political theory or anything of this world. It is established upon the inerrancy and the truth of the word of God. The law that convicts us of our sins and the gospel that proclaims to us that we are saved apart from works and purely by the work of Jesus Christ applied to us by the Holy Spirit and received by faith a law. Next thing we saw was we began a part where we're looking at three different types of ground, all of which are going to be rejecting the word in some way. You have those who are like the path, who reject it immediately offhand. It doesn't grow, it doesn't even come close to producing anything. These are the people who hate the word, or are, are at the very least are apathetic about the word. They just don't really care. And then we saw the rocky ground. These are the ones who have the semblance of faith, it's, there's some growth, but their roots do not run very deep. They have a very surface level faith. Faith that is, that is grounded just purely in the emotions. And as we just sung, in Rock of Ages cut for me, tears, sorrow, happiness, joy, know those things save you. It's Jesus who saves, and he is a person. Unless you know that person, all the tears in the world won't do you any good. It's shallow, and it will not last. This morning, we're going to be looking at the last two types of ground. First of all, the thorns, or I'll be referring to it a lot as the weeds in this story. And then finally, the last type of ground, the good soil that receive, accepts, and produces fruit for the kingdom of God. Let's begin by looking at the thorns. Here the sower, we come to the sower once again, who is out in the field and he is throwing the seed almost willy nilly all over the place. And here he has found the thorns or the weed. Now, here's the thing about weeds. We all know what they are. They're everywhere. They're incredibly stubborn. They're dangerous to the, they're dangerous to our gardens and to our yards. It always appears that in the, in the, in the springtime, they're the very first things to grow. And then in the wintertime, they're the very last things to die. Uh, A couple of years ago in Huntsville, we had a a little snow that came through. It wasn't very big snow, but we had a a couple of inches. It's Max's first experience with snow. We're taking all these pictures of him. But in the background of every one of those pictures, uh, photobombing all of them are those wild onions that are growing up probably about three or four inches up actually above the snow. And actually made the snow not even look all that good. They're stubborn. They're dangerous to your They're certainly dangerous to a flower bed and everything like that. But they, nonetheless, though, in the Christian life, we also have thorns. We also have weeds that are just as prevalent. In today's text, Jesus is going to highlight two of these types of weeds, two of these types of thorns, the deceitfulness of riches, and then the desires of the world. I want us to look at these. Uh, I want to look at these uh both uh both together one after another so let's begin by looking at the deceitfulness of riches let's begin by looking at the invention of lying the very first temptation the very the very first the very first deception in the history of mankind there in the garden in genesis chapter 3 you have adam and eve with perfect communion in the garden with God, walking with God, and then here comes a serpent who comes to Eve, and he starts not just tempting her, but deceiving and lying to her. She wants, he wants to take her eyes off of God, and he wants to put it on to something else. He wants to redefine what she thinks about God, and also redefine what, he, what she thinks about himself. So the first thing that he says, he says, did God really say that you could not eat of any tree in the garden? And the answer to that question is, of course, no, that is not at all what God said. God said that you can eat of any tree of the garden of Eden except for one. What the serpent is doing there in his crappiness is that he is showing God as being some type of withholding beast. This God, who, this God who is, who is like, like forget that he said you, that he's providing for you, that he's caring for you, that he's like a father to you. Forget all that. Who is he to say that you can't have that? You can't be happy unless you have that. You can't be happy unless you can have everything. Who is God to tell you that you cannot have that? And then the second thing that he does is, Satan shows himself to be some type of false messiah, some type of false savior, a false liberator. He says, the day that you eat of it, you will not surely die. In fact, the opposite. God doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because he knows in the day that you eat of it, you will be like him, and he doesn't want that. And let's be honest, we sit here and we look at Adam and Eve and we're like, man, how could they do that? It's so easy to just don't get the fruit. But let's be honest, if you're offered God like who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that kind of independence? that kind of freedom to just do willy-nilly whatever you want to do. That is ultimately what Satan is offering. He is showing God to be a monster, meaning showing himself to be a liberator. Now, why do I say that? It's because riches, well, money, offers us the same thing. It offers us this type of liberated independence from all the worries and all the hardship that we seem to have. How many people do you think there are? How many of them are you? And I would imagine this would be most of us. But say, if I just had the money, if I just didn't have these bills, well, then I wouldn't have to worry about it. I could be happy. I could be free. Nothing would stand in my way. I wouldn't have to worry about what I'm going to eat. I wouldn't have to worry about having to spam tonight. I can just as easily go to the store and get a filet mignon and wouldn't have to worry about it. Wouldn't have to worry about my bills. Wouldn't have to worry about credit card debt, how I'm going to put gas in the car, any of that kind of stuff. I could live a worryless, anxiety-free life so long as I had money. You see, that, that that money is offering this kind of hope of independence. But I want to take a few seconds here and talk about money a little bit, and what it's actually offering you. First, the temporal independence that money offers us numbs us to our eternal need. It numbs us to our eternal need. Money has a habit of telling that everything is going to be all right, that you have it all under control. But you see, the rich, we don't have it all under control, but here's the thing, the rich are not always necessarily the first to roll off. Well, they don't have, they simply go and they purchase that something. They go and they get that something. However, need is extremely important for the Christian life. And having an, not just an awareness, but a deep-seated connection with our need, or with our neediness, is a prerequisite for being in the kingdom of God. Need is a prerequisite for citizenship in the kingdom of God, and it is dependence upon Christ that keeps us there. I mean, think of it like this. Everything that we do in the Christian life, everything that we believe is all beckoning us to be as utterly dependent upon Christ for everything as we possibly can be. And here's the thing. If that is the goal of Christianity, if the goal of our Christian life is dependence upon Christ, then are we ever really in a better place than when we feel incapable? When we feel like we just can't? I think this is true. Needy people. Poor people. That makes sense to it. That is their daily life. They have these little prophets throughout their lives that are always saying that. You're not independent. You require something else. The rich they do not have that little thought. They have false thoughts. But you got this. You are like God. It's that ancient line. The second thing I want to talk about money is that the temporal independence that it offers you is nonetheless temporary, and it will fade. That independence, that money, it's a false idol. And just like the idols, these were the idols with Elijah and Elisha there uh, the, in the days of Israel. They will show themselves to be weightless, to chaff chaff in the womb, with no life in them. No they will utterly not satisfy. They might, they make you happy for a little while, but it's not going. It's not. Gonna, it's not going to be able to maintain itself. I, I, a good proof of this. This is a stat that I read uh, a long time ago. I wish I could remember the exact one, but. The stats show that it seems like suicide is a privilege of the wealthy. And Why do I say that? It's because it showed that actually, the wealthier you are, statistically, the more likely you are to commit suicide. Now, this shocked me because it seems like it would be the opposite. The poorer you are, the more likely you are to commit suicide. But that's not the case. Now, why is that? Now, there could be some simple reasons for that. If you get up a half-paying job, it might be because that's a very stressful job. And stress can produce a lot of those feelings that tells people to their minds. So they have a hard time handling and coping with it. But I think there's a spiritual reason for that as well. I mean, think about it. If you're poor and you think, if I just have money. like, like Money is the thing. If I just have money, all my cares will go away. It can save me from this life phenomenon. Your idol is always out there. I mean, you can see it, you can taste it, you can see it, but you can see other people using it. It's almost attainable. This is why I think you see so many poor people. You don't see rich people playing the lottery. You don't see too many rich people going to casinos and cashing their paychecks and putting it all on the roulette table. It's the poor people who do this. Their idol is still attainable. They just haven't gotten lucky yet. But for a rich person, if money is his idol, it's not out there. There's no hope of getting it. You've already it, and they have come to the truth. They're wealthier than they've ever been, but oftentimes they're more miserable than ever. It offered them something that it simply could not give. Them. It wrote them a check, and the check bounced. It was worthless. It was lifeless. We want money. We desire money. But to quote george bernard Shaw for the second time in about three weeks something i doubt has ever happened there are two tragedies in life the first is not getting your heart's desire the second is getting it our heart's desire is anything other than the eternal omnipotent god almighty father son and holy spirit they are lifeless idols they will come into our hearts They will rot away whatever is left. That is what a false idol does. Be careful what you wish for. But there are many who have come into the covenant community of the church who have failed to make this conclusion. They continue to be lured by the idol of pretend independence, believing the most ancient of all lies. But a life lived independent of God will always be dependent on something far less dependent than God. So the riches are the first we that chokes out faith. The second one is the desires of the world, the desires for worldly things. There's a million things that we can put into this category. Just to give you a few of them. The busyness of work, a love for work, a hatred for work, stress of work, family, marriage, singleness, relationships, ball practice, taking the kids to ball practice, a big one comes up here in a couple weeks—the Super Bowl. Particularly me, if the Cowboys win today, <laughs> that's going to be a care of the world. And, so, and so there's a couple of things I want you to notice about this little list that I gave you. It's not a comprehensive list, but there's a couple of things I want to notice want you to notice about this. First of all, they're not bad. I mean, if you're a Titans fan, you might think the Cowboys won this like they're the devil or something like that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, friends, family, work. All these things are actually good. The Bible, the Bible that's not just society say that, the Bible says these things are good. Money is good. It can be used for the kingdom of God. Um, uh, we were commanded to give tithes and things like that. Um, uh, family is good. Family is good. Work, and this may not feel like this all the time, work is good. Work was not a result of the fall. It was there before the fall. And in fact, I sincerely believe that when Christ returns and we're in the new heavens of the new earth, we will all have some kind of work. I don't know what that will look like, but we'll have it because why? Because it is good. It is a good thing. However, anything good can become evil if it diminishes the beauty, the of the cross of Christ. A good, any gift that causes us to be ungrateful to the gift gift. That gift has become the idol. And very often, we need to be on the lookout for these, to smash these idols. When does this happen? When, When can we tell that the cares of the world have become idols, these good things have become idols? The best evidence for this is, notice when you become anxious for things, when you have anxiety, when it creeps into your heart, when worry begins to possess our minds over time, minds over time and, and our time, this shows that we have forgotten who it is that feeds the birds of the air, clothes the flowers of the field, and who loves us so much that he gave his son for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with, with, with him graciously give us all things? Are anxious to these things? Place your eyes back upon Christ. You have been given over to the cares of the world. This brings us to the second observation that I want us to make about worldly things. Notice also how many, how many different things that there are that could fill the description of worldly cares. There's a bunch of them. And I believe that this is the main point that Jesus is trying to make here. Weeds are not like a parasite that that specifically find a particular kind of plant and destroy it. No, weeds are indiscriminate. They grow up, and they simply overwhelm the plant with pure numbers. They choke it out. They begin to compete for the nutrients in the soil. They begin to compete for the sunlight that gives the nutrients to the plants. In the same way, there are many things that compete for the sunlight of our attention in the Christian life. And it can be so overwhelming that the gospel gets pushed further and further to the side that we actually lose sight of it altogether. And this is, and this was, and this was true of the hearers of the word in Jesus's day. Then, how? If this was true, of the, if this was true of the hearers of the word in Jesus's day, how much more true is this of us? We have a crisis on our hands, a crisis of information and of busyness. All these things pulling us away from the object of Christian faith, Jesus finds. You have a crisis of information. And these things, they're with us everywhere. I mean, just think about it. Something happens on the the, the other side of the world. How long does it take you to hear about it? A few minutes, maybe? Then how long does it take you to start worrying about it? Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that we shouldn't worry and we shouldn't have pity for things that have happened on the other side of the world. We should be in prayer for those things. But there's something very unnatural about it. Information for however long the earth has been has never traveled as fast as this. Like We're worried about something that's happened on the other side of the world. It just go back a hundred years. It would be years before. It, the whole thing would be taken care of by the time we actually heard about it. In the War of 1812, battles between the English and the Americans continued on for months after peace was reached. Why? Because Not because they just loved fighting each other. It was because they did not know the war had ended. They thought they were still fighting. It Word travels extremely fast. And these things, it just, we've become really addicted to this information. It's on social media, it's on news times, it's on television, and it's all around us. And then on top of that, you have a crisis of, of just busyness. It used to be that you would go to work, you'd come home, you'd be with your family, go to bed, and you'd wake up and do it all over again the next day. Now, what? Through this, you have email Text messages, phone calls, over and over and over and over and over again. It is hard in in, in, in the world to actually find any type of Sabbath rep. This is why one reason I hope you come here and I hope when you do your phones are turned off. You're not using them. If you can go the whole day, just hide your phone from yourself. Do it. It's busyness, it's information, the cares of the world. That draw us away from Christ. Now, here's a question. What do we do in this crisis? Well, the answer is easy, but we don't really like it. It's one of those things like I can sit here and talk about, you know, the crisis of information, social media and all these things and get a lot of head nods and things like that. But then when I give you the solution to the problem, get rid of it, all of a sudden, what do we start doing? Well, it's not all that bad. You get some good out of it. You know who else does that? Addicts. Addicts will always try to justify whatever it is they use. Now, obviously, I don't think so, so, being addicted to social media is its as bad as being addicted to some type of drug or something like that. But nonetheless, an addiction, all addiction is is an extreme form of idolatry. There is something competing for your worship. There is something competing for your attention. There is something like those weeds competing for the sunlight with the flowers and the cucumbers and tomatoes. All those things are competing for your attention and for your worship. So be, be informed. That is idolatry. That is idolatry. We just read the Ten Commandments. The First Commandment. No other gods before me. Another other it is competing. When God says there will be no other gods before me, it doesn't mean I could be number one, then you can have number two, and three, and four. No, no. One and one. And smash your idols. And there is so much that can crowd out the cause of Christ for our minds that can lead us away from the kingdom of God. But very quickly, I want to point out another thing just because I think it's really important. I think it's, it's maybe a uniquely American thing that oddly enough, sometimes, to, to the world, rather than drawing us away from the kingdom of God, rather than drawing us away from the church and the covenant tree, it can actually draw us to it, but not in a good way Not in, not in, good, in the way that the goats are attracted to the same grass that the, the sheep are i give you an example of this a friend of mine uh, who was an elder in the PCA I uh, ran into a friend at a store that he hadn't seen in a while. He, he used to go to church with. They were talking, and he was asking about this guy's son. And the guy said, oh, well, he's doing really good. He just graduated from medical school. Uh, and my friend said, oh, this is really good. I'm sure he worked very hard. And then because of my friends, a, a, a really good elder and really cares about people's souls, he asked, where's he going to church? And the guy says, "A church will tell you what it was. Somewhere in the area. Uh, then my dad asked, well, what was it that attracted you that? What drew him to that age? And the guy said, well, you know, he just got out of med school. He's trying to get his medical practice off the ground. And there's a lot of really good contact that he can make. You see that? You see what just happened? So let me ask you a question. What are you Is the care of the world? Is this a social club? Are you here because you're afraid of what people might think about you if you don't show up? Are you here because this is where your buddies are? are you here for some type of social collateral that you might get? Or are you here because these are your brothers? These are your sisters? And you're all gathered together to worship the God. As I said before, who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for us all. It is now offering us all things. That it's being plain. And that the Holy, through which the Holy Spirit is working and making alive. Are we here for life? Are we here to be saved from death? Are we here for fellowship? Are we here for the, the comfort of the word? Are we here to be edified and to be strengthened for the life outside of these walls? Are we here for something else? Think of it. Up. Why are you here? I want to finish tonight by looking at this last type of sword, this last type of here, the good soul. And I want to focus here when we've been kind of bouncing off of this with every single one. Um, but I want to focus here particularly on the fruitful of the good. so Yes, they receive the word. Yes, they accept the word. But I want to draw our attention especially to the fruitfulness of the word. Now let me begin by saying something that I've already said before. Just because you see thorns in your own heart, just because you see weeds in your own heart, and mind that are competing for the sunlight of your worship, just because you see that that does not mean that you are not spoiled. Let me let me read for you. Let me read for you what John Calvin says about the distance. He says, Christ does not now speak of the perfection or the perfection of the believer, but only points out those in whom the word of God yields fruit. We ought to labor, no doubt, to pull out the thorns, but as our utmost exertion will never succeed so well, but that there will always be some remaining behind, let each of us endeavor at least to deaden them that they may not hinder the fruit of the word. Let me summarize Calvin here. It is not the protect, perfection of faith that shows the soul to be good, but the fruitfulness, of it. the fruitfulness of the faith. This is proven by the fact here that Jesus does not expect everyone to produce a hundredfold. There are 30, there are 60, and a hundred. Not everyone's faith is as strong as the other. Not everyone's faith will be proved as fruitful as the other. Also notice that the Lord never makes any suggestion that the grain that yields thirtyfold is any less good soil than the than the ground that produces a hundredfold. This is all good soil, whether it's fruitful a little or if it is fruitful much. Now let me make three closing exhortations based on this. First, Endeavor to be. fruitful, this is Calvin said? Endeavor to uproot the thorns in your life, and to be fruitful. Now we are Reformed Protestant Christians. We we hate the idea of even adding the smallest little work of our own to the finished work of Christ. We we confess true that we are justified by faith alone, apart from anything that we have done on our own. But nonetheless, the Bible does bear it. It does call us to be faithful and to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, For we are his God's, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good words. Paul also says in Romans 8, Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ Jesus. Who was Christ Jesus? The law keep. When you keep the law, you look like Christ who gave himself for you. That is what we're commanded to do. So endeavor to be fruitful and to produce a hundredfold. Second exhortation, do not be discouraged when you fail to produce a hundredfold. When? When? You will fail. That's what John, also, what John Calvin, there will always be thorns left behind. Do not be discouraged. How do you fight that discouragement? Remember two things. First of all, remember that your faith has never merited your salvation. Your faith does not merit your salvation. It's the object is Christ Jesus. There. Your faith. you merited your salvation. This is why a weak faith saves just as well as a strong faith. Faith is not saved. Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument that lays hold to his work. That is it. It is Christ who has merited it. Remember that. Also remember that there is not a Christian on the spectrum of fruitfulness who isn't eternally valuable to the kingdom. Paul likens the church to a apostle now, you're, I don't know, say if you're a farmer, your legs are probably a little more valuable than mine. i mostly just sit behind a computer all day. That's what my legs do. Nonetheless, my fingers that do all the timing cannot say to my legs I have no need for you. I need my legs. Why do you come to church? Because you need us and we need you. No matter how fruitful you are, whether you're producing 30, 60, or 100, you are needed here at Salem, heart baby. And for one last point of application, let me exhort you to remain faithful. And I think that this is the key to what it is to be a good soil, to be faithful. What is faithful? It does not look like perfection. Uh, Proverbs thirty, Proverbs 31. Sure you do. Uh, speaks about what a godly woman's look He is always endeavoring to, to feed the poor, to provide for the needy. He is serving in the homes. He is serving in the marketplace. This is a busy, busy, busy one. When I was um, working with a youth group that I've had a church a book that was written on that, uh, that was marketed to young girls, many young girls were reading this book. and They were reading it and many of them were very encouraged by it. But others Came away from it and said, I I don't know who this is describing, but it's not me. I don't look anything like this. And rather than being encouraged by the book, they're being very discouraged about the book. They always stuff it. And then when I was in seminary, I learned something. The Hebrew Bible is not arranged in the same order that your English Bible. Is Did you know that? I didn't know. That. And so if you turn in your Bible through the book of Proverbs to the very last chapter, Proverbs chapter 31, and you look over to the next page, you'll see the book of Ecclesiastes. But if you go to a Hebrew Bible, and you go to the book of Proverbs, and you turn a page, you will not see Ecclesiastes. You'll see the book of Ruth. All of you see the book of Ruth? Because she is the example of Proverbs thirty, And she's perfect by the means. If you've read that book any recently, you know she does some very shady things. But what is it that defines her? What is it that defines Ruth, the Proverbs 31? She is faithful to Naomi. She is faithful to God. So be faithful. This means always be looking to God. Have you done well? Have you produced fruit for the kingdom of God? And go victim, go to his throne and lay your trophies at his feet. But they were never yours in the first place. You are his fortune. Have you sinned? Have you failed? to be fruitful for the kingdom. Then look to God. See him as he is revealed in the cross of Christ. See him there suffering. See him there bleeding and declaring once and for all of the sinners that it is finished and you are right God. Pray that we all be called faithful. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so often faithless people. However, Father, we are not saved by our faithfulness. We are saved by the perfection of Jesus Christ, who bestows us with his benefits and as a free gift. So, Father, we thank you for that gift. We pray from prayer. Be with us as we continue worship. Be with us as we we come to your table to partake of the something Jesus i um.